So just as, as a quick preface, uh, I currently work with uh, Rick. Rick is the senior teaching minister at the Hills Church in the Fort Worth area, a multi-site church. And he's been there for almost 30 years and, uh, and has mentored different guys. And I've been working with him for three and a half years on the teaching team with him as a teaching minister. And, uh, and, and, and despite being uh, his son, I also worked with Jeff Walling at the Providence Road Church of Christ uh, doing worship ministry. So I've been around these guys not only uh, personally but also professionally. And what I noticed about them is that they are incredibly different in personality type. Uh, one is an introvert, one is an extrovert. In their preaching styles, they're very different. One is linear, the other is difficult to describe. And, <laughs> and yet, I noticed that their trajectory as preachers is incredibly similar. That they started in smaller churches of Christ that, that were maybe a, a lot more conservative and over time through kind of the grace movement uh, were, were led to preach in a very different kind of way and then helped to lead some progressive changes by Church of Christ standards uh, in, in making different changes, became uh, senior ministers in leading into both and kind of uh, instrumental and a cappella churches and now are both in environments where they're at multi-site churches. So despite their differences uh, in personality or style, they're trajectory uh, across the last couple of decades is incredibly similar. And what I, what I was excited about was just to get a chance to ask them uh, about que questions about that journey. And so, uh, Rick, I, I want to begin with you, and, and I just want to ask, you know, in, in your nearly 40 years, as you mentioned, Tuesday night of preaching, um, how, how, what are some of the major shifts that your preaching has taken over the years? Um, well, Obviously, doctrinally, I discovered grace about three or four years into my preaching. That was a huge shift. Um, I think um, the, the major shift in the last 15, 20 years has been the first 20 years of my preaching was almost completely expository preaching. Now it's about half expository preaching and half topical preaching. A and some of that is because as I've grown as a pastor, I understand there are subjects that my church needs to hear that I can't just cover by preaching through a book. Also, I think after 20 to 30 years of preaching, you trust yourself more theologically to handle a topic, uh, not just by picking and choosing your favorite verses, but by bringing that topic uh, in light of the whole story of Scripture that you've spent this many years trying to understand. So I trust myself more. I, I would say to a younger preacher, I ground yourself for a season in good expository preaching. But that has been a, a, a big change. And then finally, Probably the, the largest change in my preaching over the years is that as, as I've been at one church for so long, I have come to understand the value of leading through preaching. And so now I understand my task not just as feeding my church, but leading my church, casting vision for my church, and helping my church uh, capture a vision of a future that's so compelling will sacrifice where we are right now to get where we could be next. And I do that through preaching very intentionally so that's been a big shift yeah. Jeff what about you um, I, I can't start whoops I can't start at all uh, there we go. I can't start without saying thank you to this guy who I have watched pour into you and bless your life and he has had as a rhythm in his life of raising up young ministers and if more preachers would take some of the time that you've taken, Rick, to invest in the next generation, we'd have more young ministers ready to step into pulpits. So that's, a, I think, a challenge for all of us who preach. So thank you. Thank you for being an example in, in, in that and for loving my kid. I mean, you know, you can have anything I have now. Um, as far as the arc, I w it was interesting listening to what Rick said. My first thought was I started without my voice, so I found other people's voices. I... I listened to, um, last week, uh, Marvin Phillips passed away. And some of you may have known Marvin. Marvin was a preacher at the Garnet Road Church of Christ in Oklahoma. And I remember as a very young man, 16 years old, you know, hearing him and getting his tapes and listening to them. And, uh, and, and so in my, my early years, I, I, I listened to different people and thought, oh, and I tried them on. You know, I, I kind of said, okay, let me, let me see what that feels like. And, and through then the arc of, of my life, kind of found my own voice and continued to ask, you know, is this, is this right? Not, is it right, this persona, but rather, what is the mix of, of teaching and preaching? I, I think I started early preaching, 
And when I think of preaching, I think of calls for action. You know, the preacher's role is to get you to do something different right now than you're doing. And preaching is often an emotive challenge to do that. The teacher is here to educate and to say, I want you to leave here knowing these facts. I pray that you'll do something good with them, but my goal is to make sure you have this truth so that it will change you. And, and I think I, I started early with, with more being the preacher and then moved into a more expository uh, uh, role or, or choice, being more of a teacher. And, and I remember in that time having people even come in, you know, Boy, I really, you know, I really got a lot out of that. I really, and I thought, okay, that's good. But then the other comments that circle back around because people wouldn't tell them to you to your face is, man, is Jeff just tired? You know, I mean, I just, where's, where's, the, where's, where's those, there's excitement and fire and passion. So getting to the place where blending those, blending teaching and preaching, because I think they're both very present uh, in the pulpit. And I can just ditto what Rick said about the power of the pulpit to shape, which means whatever it is I'm preaching through, uh, there's going to be a rhythm of whether it is evangelism or whether it is discipleship or whether it is relationship. It's going gonna, it's gonna to run all the way through that. Uh, and that's probably been uh, a difference in my preaching. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. I can hear both of you guys talking about wearing multiple hats in the preaching moment of, of being being a leader, being a teacher, being a preacher. And I, I, I want to ask specifically about leading uh, through the pulpit because, you know, Rick, you've already alluded to this a little bit, but, but one of the things that I, I've always been curious about is through seasons where the church needs a vision for the future, needs, needs some, some, someone to call them to something bigger, or needs to help get through a big theological shift, whatever that change is for the shape of your church's culture, I'm curious what you guys have learned about um, being in the pulpit and recognizing, okay, I need, to be, I need to be a leader in this moment as much as I am a preacher. Uh, so Jeff, let me, let me let you start. Um, well, three things. The first, uh, the definition of a leader is somebody who looks behind them and there's people following you. Uh, you can call yourself a leader, you can name yourself the lead pastor, you senior pastor, whatever language you know you want to use, but leadership is earned. And so in preaching, I have to recognize that, that as I'm going to lead from the pulpit, I've got a first lead in the pew and I've got a first lead in the lobby and I've got a first lead as a servant. If that's going on, and enough of a tenure is there for people to have seen that and experienced that authentically, not uh, showy, but authentically, then I can, in the pulpit, be transparent with them. As a leader, second, I would say that as a transparent leader, letting the church know what you're feeling has power. If I'm in a trusted relationship with a church, We've invested in one another, and I'm able to say, man, I am really excited, or I'm really concerned, or I'm struggling with this. You know, we need to. And whether it is trying to address people coming in late to church or trying to address a, 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 you know, a theological shift for your church or a practical shift for your church. Uh, and last but not least, I'd say that as a leader, I have to remember that I'm not preaching to the change. I'm preaching to the purpose, to the drive, to the why. Preaching to the change is, we're going to do this different. Hey, guys, we're going to do this different. That only takes one sentence. You know, it only takes one sentence. We're going to have an instrumental service. Everybody will get that. Some will say hallelujah. Some will say, well, get the phone book out. and We'll find us another place where we can go. And, and, and that reaction is going to be there. But what's really important is why are we going to make whatever change or whatever addition or whatever restructuring that we're going to do? Preaching the why is huge. And as a leader, I, I think that's the thing I often missed and have to circle back to. Okay, so I'll kind of just piggyback on that and say a lot of the same thing. Um, when I was a young preacher, I thought that if I would just preach well and live a life of integrity, my church would grow. And I was seduced into thinking it works because my church did grow. My very first church at Southern Hills was on the side of town where everybody was moving. I was young, and I started attracting a lot of college students. And in the 1980s, baby boomers had enough institutional loyalty 
they would find the church of Christ that made them the happiest, and they'd go there. And so I thought, see, just preach a good sermon and live a life of integrity, and your church will grow. I found out sooner than later that is not a formula that's going to grow churches today. The institutional loyalty is gone. They can get on their podcast and listen to a ton of good sermons. And uh, they'll love a good sermon, and they'll pat you on the back and give you a cost of living raise. But your church won't grow. Your church won't grow until it buys into a mission that's so compelling people will sacrifice to pursue it. They'll even be so compelled by that mission, they'll put up with stuff at the church they don't like because the mission has captured their heart so much. And so the two things I have learned about that in in our fellowship especially was, number one, as a young preacher, I couldn't understand sometimes when I would propose a change why there would be almost an overreaction to it. And here's what I, I learned, especially preaching to my generation and my parents' generation. They grew up in a church that emphasized ecclesiology more than Christology. We grew up hearing sermons about how to do church. So it didn't dawn on me as a younger preacher. Anytime I talked about changing church, they were hearing it through the filter of you're changing the way I get right with God. And and so what I tell younger preachers now, your first few years, your job is just to preach grace and to ground the church in the gospel and to preach Christology. What makes us right with God? Because as long as people still think the way we do church is what makes us right, they will push back in ways that seem so out of proportion to what you're proposing. And even though you think those tapes aren't still playing in their head, they are. The second thing I've learned is exactly what you said, the power of why. Now, here's the reality. Sheep by nature are fearful. Sheep will stay in a pasture until all the grass is gone and the water's polluted. And they will never come to a shepherd and say, please take us to a new place. (laughs) Because the new place is through a dark valley. And it's scary. It is the job of the shepherd, the pastor, to see where the sheep are, to know they're happy there. But to know if we don't get to there, it's not going to end well here. It's the job of the pastor to understand the sheep have got to move for their own good, even if they don't see it yet. And then that's why. You tell and you explain why. What is the mission? What is the goal? What is the win? Whatever word you want to use. But, but expl- lead with why. Not with what. Lead with why. What will change? The big what today will not be the big what in 10 years. But the why must ground. A simple illustration at our church, uh, we have a 2020 vision of things that we want to accomplish in our city, and that included going multi-site. So I stood up one Sunday and explained because our vision is to be a church for the city, our name no longer worked. We were the Richland Hills Church of Christ. Well, that's a location-specific name, but we're going to have campuses in other parts of the city, so we have to change our name. So going forward, I said, our name will now be the Hills Church of Christ. After the service, a, uh, a preacher was visiting them from one of the larger, more traditional churches in our city, and he came up to me, and he said, how would you do that? I thought, how did I do what? You, you just changed the name of a 55-year-old church in one announcement, and nobody's angry. I said, two reasons. Number one, because I grounded the change in why, and I've been preaching that why for 20 years. And number two, all the people that would have got angry left our church and go to your church. So (laughs) that's the key to leadership. (laughs) So hearing that, you know, I recognize sometimes leading, it sounds like leading means you see see the dark valley, you see the controversy, you see the pushback, and you have to go. But one of the things I want to ask you guys about is that, you know, in today's world, um, with, with social media and with what seems like weekly viral uh, tragedies or, or uh, scandals or different things, what, what I think I, I, preachers are dealing with is not necessarily sheep coming up and saying, hey, we need to go here, but hey, why haven't you talked about X, Y, or Z yet? And I'm curious, what have, what have you learned about addressing or speaking to uh, controversy or politics or things happening in society uh, and letting that um, come inside of your your pulpit. Um, and Rick, if you're cool, I'd love for you to start with that. 
That's a great question, and that is a hard question, and I know all of you out here that are preachers wrestle with that too. It seems like every single week there is an event that would merit a statement from the pulpit. There's a hurricane, there's a tsunami, there's a, there's a shooting of another armed man, there's a statement by a politician that just is outrageous, uh, there is a scandal uh, in the church. Every single week, we could stop, shut down for 10 minutes. And so it's hard to know. Some of this you have to contextualize. Um, I, I don't make a statement every single time there's a shooting. But in my city, after Ferguson and after the Minnesota tragedy, and then five policemen in my city get shot, you can't walk up the next weekend and, and uh, say, well, I, I can't talk about that because I'm in a series on giving. And, and so you have to ask yourself, uh, as you know, your own church and your own context, what are the things that are so pressing they simply cannot be ignored this week? Having said that, uh, there are times where you address an issue with a, with a series. You just feel like you have to say something. Uh, and, and so I'm working right now on a, on a series on racial reconciliation because it, it's, just, it's just so needed in all of our churches. But more often than not, what I will do is I will intentionally find a way that's legitimate to, to work into the sermon a comment that speaks to the question a lot of people are talking about right now. You don't have to work very hard in the Gospels to be able to speak to the, the sin of objectifying and commodifying women. You're not stretching your sermon to speak to that in the context of what you're preaching out of the life of Jesus. You don't have to work very hard in the text to, to speak to uh, the value of all life in the womb and out of the womb, regardless of race, color, or nation of origin. You, you don't have to work very hard to get there. And, and so what I find, rather than stepping down and making a statement every week, I, I find it's, personally it's more effective to find ways in the course of the sermon itself to help people understand how relevant Scripture is to what we're talking about every day at the water cooler. In other words, this really is a living word. We don't have to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant because it is alive and it speaks to the deepest issues of every generation and every culture. Absolutely. Uh, real quick, back, back to you, Rick. One of the things I've heard you talk about before is one of your earliest sermons in speaking to what, uh, speaking to that same issue of race. Could you just share that story real quick? Well, <laughs> I grew up in a racist church, and um, I didn't, I mean, we were a sectarian church. I didn't know it. We were a legalistic. I didn't know it. We were, we were racist. I did know it. Um, I still remember, it's a little bitty church, and uh, we had a a wall, and we thumbtacked pictures of the missionary on the wall, and uh, of uh, Africans getting baptized. And, and one of the matriarchs in my church said, "I wish they wouldn't put those pictures up there. I just don't like the idea of those." And you can guess what word she used next: "In heaven with me." And, and I remember thinking, "You got nothing to worry about." So, um, <laughs> so I'm 16 years old. And it's my very first sermon, and I had six points, and they were all terrible. But my third point was the sin of racism, and I called the church out. My father was a deacon of the visitation ministry, and he had been told by the elders, if a black family visits our church, we are not to go visit and ask them to come back. I called the church out and said, that is sin. Uh, there was an emergency elders meeting. And uh, the next day, our part-time youth minister told me that I would never be allowed to preach at that church again. And so I, I learned early on that um, uh, preaching's a calling that can be dangerous, I guess. Uh, you know, but God used that in powerful ways. And one of the ways God used that was, see, I grew up in that climate that said, we're the right church because we're right on everything. And yet we were so wrong about this. And, and God planted that seed. If you're wrong about that, what else are you wrong about? And can you preach a gospel that salvation is about being right? So God used it, but that was my early experience in uh, uh, controversy. 
Yeah, and uh, and Jeff, I know for you, uh, share a little bit about kind of that first. I think it was like a gospel revival, um, where uh, where you kind of had a moment where, as a young man, you were speaking to something controversial. Uh, I was 17 years old and in Grandview, Washington, uh, doing my first gospel meeting that my dad had. They'd call my dad, and he said, "Well, I can't, but my boy here preaches." And so um, I went up there, had my lessons. Uh, I say my lessons, his lessons, he'd gone over with me. And so by Thursday night, when I got up there, I found out they wanted me to do speak to a class in the morning, each morning, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday, and in the evening. By, by Wednesday night, I told them everything I knew about Jesus twice. So <laughs> Thursday night's lesson was the other end of the Great Commission, you know, be, you know, be condemned. And, uh, and so I thought I would open with some current events. And at that particular time, uh, memory serves, the laws on the legal consent age for abortion had been adjusted. I want to say it was in the state. I don't think it was national. But the laws on the legal consent age for abortion had been adjusted, and it was one of the things I was rattling off about. Boy, you look at our world, you know how broken and busted it is. You know, Jesus didn't bring this sin into the world. He is not condemning the world because he created this. This is who we are. Um, and I said, um, you realize right now the legal consent age of abortion has been lowered. It was, I want to say it was like 13 or 14. And I, and I said, you know what that means for the, for the boys and girls of the state? You realize that. You realize right now that any boy or girl could get an abortion at 13 without their mother knowing about it. Now, I hadn't heard that I had said any boy could get an abortion, <laughs> but I had. And so the audience kind of giggled. And I didn't realize what I'd said. And I thought, oh, these rubes think that's too young. Okay. So I said, well, you may laugh, but I know one that's had one. And at this, of course, they all looked at one another. And they all got the joke, and I didn't, you know. And, and I said, you know, and it was something that ruined their life. And I, I didn't say there. I didn't even say her, you know. And, and so by the time there was enough giggling going on in this little church, and I think there may have been 40 people there that night, one old brother at the back just kind of said, try a girl, <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, I'm a 17-year-old single guy. What did he just yell at me? <laughs> I just went on with a lesson, got through it as best I could. There were no responses that particular evening, and I got to the back and got to stand there for uh, 15 minutes of everybody going by saying, I'd love to meet that boy you was talking about, ha, 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 ha. And went back to my hotel room and thought, I'm never preaching again. Not because I'd been fired, but because I thought, I don't, I don't deserve it. Um, Rick said all the great things that I think need to be said about uh, speaking to controversy. I will say this from a, a kind of homiletics uh, and, and preaching standpoint. If your church walks in with X on its mind, you have two choices. You could ignore the fact that they have X, whatever it is, the school shooting, a bombing, you know, whatever. You can ignore that and just launch on as though it doesn't matter. And there, there's a danger there that the church begins to think this is kind of this holy other space where real life doesn't impede. So I'm going to go right ahead on with my text on Leviticus and not address what happened at the Boston Marathon. Or I can recognize whatever it may be, good or bad, everybody's head is there. And when I'm teaching young preachers, I teach them the first job when you open your mouth is to get in the same boat with the church. Now, you can get the church in your boat. You can talk about something going on in your life in such a way that causes them to go, oh. Or you can get the church in somebody else's boat. You can talk about what Paul was facing, or you can you know, tell some story that gets them to think about another setting. Oh, because once you're in the same boat with them, you can grab the oar, and you can steer the boat where you want it to go. But if you just get in and take off, you know, in the book of Leviticus, boom, and I'm heading down the road, they may or may not get in. Some are standing on the shore waving goodbye to you and looking at Facebook. So um, if something has happened that is in their minds, I encourage you to consider how can I get in the boat with them? Simply and easily, I know that many of us came in this morning very aware of what happened yesterday at da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now I'm in your boat. And you go, oh, he gets me. He's in my boat. 
He's actually talking about something I'm thinking. And then I need to find the way to artfully, authentically, go from there to where we need to get to. Sometimes it is. You know, I don't think I can start this lesson this morning without us pausing and just giving this to God. Because that's the only thing we really can do. Or sometimes it is, you know, what happened there is so similar to, and I'm heading another direction. So you got three boats. You get them in your boat, you get in somebody else's boat, or you get in their boat. Um, and when speaking politically, and I'm going to hit this one, I try to vow to be apolitical in the pulpit. I try to avoid even when they're served up by softballs from the White House, I try to avoid the easy joke, the easy laugh, the easy snark. Because if I do it here, then they wonder why I don't do it there, and I begin to show my own bias. But while I am apolitical, I cannot be amoral because Scripture isn't. And so speaking into moral issues is different from speaking politically. You can speak about moral issues and make it political, but I don't believe personally that's the preacher's job. You want to say something? Well, I totally agree with that. And what will happen sometimes because of the waters we swim in today, people hear political statements you never made. Mm -hmm. Every single election year, every four years if we elect a president, people leave my church because of the political statements I made, and they leave going both ways. They hear something that I said that thinks endorsed a candidate they're against, and they leave going both ways because they want to hear something like that. So, so you're exactly right. We, I, I try to stay apolitical. But, but sometimes you speak on subjects that people hear through the lens of you're talking politics, right. but you're not talking. You're talking ethic, right. and you're talking kingdom value, and, and the kingdom does speak to those things that we have to speak to. Yeah, absolutely. I know that... Um just at, at the hills when when Rick addressed uh, some of the some of the shooting and uh, and talked even about um, Black Lives Matter and 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 wanted to be even handed, uh, I I had to type out for uh, for longtime members at our church um, and some close family friends who have uh, loved ones in law enforcement. I had to type out his statements in every part of the sermon where he had touched on that to show that everywhere he spoke on it, he was even-handed. But they were reacting to how it made them feel, not to what, the, not to what you actually said. And I think that, that's, uh, that's on point. I, I want to open it up for just a couple of questions. Uh, if, uh, I, I know we, we kind of put, put out, hey, if you got your questions, go ahead and bring them. So I want to I open it up real quick and, and let, uh, let some people ask. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, for the recording, how do, how do you speak to the exclusivity of Christ in a, in a world and in a generation that says, hey, we're just generally spiritual and there's not necessarily one way? Whoever wants to kick it off. Well, you address it, um, and, and it's a great question. Um, some years ago, uh, not that long ago, I went to our, our high schoolers and I said, ask Preacher Rick, you write down the question that you'd most like me to answer. And... Uh, and I got all kinds of questions all across the board. Everything from how'd you meet your wife? That's a bold move, by the way, to, Richard, Rick. Uh, that's a bold move. To uh, what's your favorite kind of pizza? You know, but but the single question I got more than any other was, um, not not why should we believe in Jesus, but why should we believe Jesus is the only way? You know, I have friends at school that are good people. I have friends that are Mormons. I have friends that are Muslims. I have friends. You know, you you know the question. And that was their biggest question because because they they uh, they swim in a sea of uh, uh, detesting intolerance. Inclusivity is the highest value of our culture, and uh, so and they're very intolerant of anyone who doesn't meet their definition of tolerance. So you have to speak to it, and so I do. I, I just lay out the case probably at least once or twice a year of why I'm so convicted that Jesus is the answer for the problems of the world. But the other thing I, I do is I recognize this is something you care about. So, for example, last year, uh, Taylor and I asked our church, what are the biggest questions that cause you or someone you love to have a faith problem? What are the biggest questions? 
and, and we, we said, we're going to deal with those questions. And so they were what you, exactly what you would expect, the problem of evil, uh, the reliability of Scripture, uh, God and science, what about hell, why is Jesus the only way? And so we just said up front, we're going to talk about the things that, that you wrestle with. And, and the great thing about being the senior preaching leader is I said, Taylor, you get science and you get hell. <laughs> so, and he did a great job. <laughs> Thanks for giving my boy hell. That's, I'll, I'll take that with me. Uh, you hear what you want to hear. Uh, two, two things uh, on that great question. Thing number one, when Paul went onto the hill... Uh, the Areopagus, he could have said, what stupid idiotic things have you got up here? And immediately that would have ended his opportunity to speak into them. And uh, I'm afraid, especially those of us who may have <clears throat> walked with Jesus longer and have a few more wrinkles, maybe a little less tolerant. Uh, I was talking with my son about a conference I went to where they were constantly using the word space. You know, we want to create a space here where we can have a kind of a sacred space for about the fourth time they said space, I was just about to go into space thinking, really? I mean, what, you know, what, what kind of Deepak Chopra stuff are we, are we trying to, to channel here? And, 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 and even as I was talking with him about it, I could see in his face, if I sound like that, the gates of brains close. They just shut the doors. So I think the first thing I would do is I would applaud spirituality. I would say, praise God that in our world there is such an interest in things that go beyond the natural, go beyond the physical. And I would probably second say, you know, when I look at the different ways all around the planet that people are reaching upwards, I recognize that that's something that God has put in us all. I also recognize that I have been so ignorant of even being able to understand what other people believe, that, that I'm pretty lame at being able to talk to them other than to say, here's the five ways I know you're wrong. So, so leaning into the encouragement and building the bridge so that then you can ask with them the question, well, why, why would anyone say that Jesus is different? And, and, and uh, approach it as an inquirer not as a corrector. Oh, that's great. Yeah, let me, I gotta, I've just got to say this, and I'm going to sound like an old fundamentalist, but part of the problem is we're not preaching the gospel enough mm. in our preaching. Mm. Mm. I, I mean that seriously. We're preaching really good, solid sermons that help people, but we're not preaching the gospel enough. And, and so, and Taylor is great at this, and it's one of the, our priorities and our values in every assembly at our church, where's our gospel moment? It, it may not be me. It may be in the moment where we prepare for communion. It may be a statement that the worship leader says after a powerful song. But I ask myself after every sermon, where's my gospel moment? Because every single week I'm talking to people who know they're not right, but they're, they think, you know, I just need to be better. I just need to be, I need to be good enough. And so, for example, this week I'm doing a series on uh, uh, we call it like it or not, certain truths that are just you either like or don't like, but they're true. And, and this week, you need others. You were, you were made to live in community because you were made in the image of God. Okay, we all agree on that. You could do a great sermon on the power of community, but I'm going to add this to it. In Genesis 15, when God enters into a covenant with Abraham, and they cut those animals in half, and everybody understands you break the covenant, you, experience, you should die. God doesn't let Abraham walk through with him. He knows we're going to break the covenant. And God says, I'll take the curse on myself. So I'm going to take a moment in that sermon and say, that's what God does for us. The curse we deserve, he takes. That's the commitment he's made. And, and then I'll, I'll apply it. So I, I, we are so worried about offending people. And, and the gospel is offensive. The cross is scandalous. Let's, let's not offend on anything else. As I love the statement in Acts 15. Let's not put anything in the way of those that are turning from idols to God. But I don't apologize for offending you with the gospel. Because being good is not good enough. And so I make sure every single week. And see, always what happens. If you, if you create a culture where every single week that young person is hearing, this is why Jesus died for us. 
This is why Jesus came for us. Kindness does not take away a single sin. Blood does. And if you hear that every single week, then you have, I think, a better way to handle the conversations they're hearing every day at school. Yeah, absolutely. That's strong. Um, do we have anybody? Yes. Yeah, in the, in the back. So for the, for the recording process, what, what is the kind of the discernment journey of crafting a vision or a mission for, for a church uh, and, uh, and, and knowing is this, is this right? Jeff? I'll, I'll give two quick comments on that. First, um, when we talk about mission and vision, I think it's important to recognize that there is an eternal mission that I don't get to write. It's already written. Uh, it is there. It is God's desire to see the world reconciled to him through Christ. Uh, and now you can, you can find 16,000 different ways to word that in cool things that all start with C's if you want to. But uh, a, um, when it comes to for your congregation, what is the vision for that church? What is the picture of where God is calling you at this time? One, needs to be refreshed from time to time. But two, needs to grow out of God's word as well as out of the hearts of the people that are there. And it's where God's word and the hearts of the people that are there, where the needs of the community and God's word and the hearts of the people there come together. So that process is a process of prayer, of discussion, of listening. But at some point, somebody has got to stand up and say it. And so the preacher's role is to make sure that he understands, is to make sure that that, that vision is clear, and then to give it in such a way. We used to have a 30-word vision. It was just so beautiful. <laughs> And we realize nobody on staff could even say it. So, uh, so making sure you're the communicator who says, I've been part of this process. Maybe the elders lead it. Maybe you do however it works. But I, my job is to make sure that it's clear and compelling. And then I need to say it until my lips bleed. Because a vision or mission that's put on a wall of a, of a boardroom not going to benefit anybody. Uh, here's how I want to direct you, Rick, because I think I think we can put kind of some some skin on this. Um, you've talked before about uh, you and I have talked before about how you kind of shaped some of the vision 2020, how that process. If you could give a little just a quick snapshot of that process, but also speak to how did that reflect some of what God has put in you? Because uh, I know you and I have talked before about the unique role of, as a preacher, in working with any leadership to shape a vision. Some of that has to be tied to what God's put in you. Um, so if you'd share on that. Yeah, so it's a great question. And, and, um, and Jeff is right. The mission is non-negotiable. We exist to make and grow followers of Jesus. That's, that's what we do. That is our mission. Non-negotiable. Now, inside that huge mission, I think each church can have a, a, a specific vision of how they're going to be a part of that mission. First off, how do, you, how do you come to a conclusion? i tell you what didn't work for us, getting all the preachers and all the elders to go stay in a hotel on a Friday night and Saturday morning and come up with a mission or a vision did not work. It came up with a slogan. And most churches have really cool slogans that they put on their website that have absolutely nothing to do with how they shape their budget, how they assign their staff, or, what, or how they measure if they're being fruitful. So don't, don't call a slogan a vision. A vision is measurable. A vision is something that if your church didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. So one of the questions you ask when you're in your vision, what's going on in our city that wouldn't happen if it wasn't for us? And, and so in our case... Our elders basically assign Rick, go off, spend time with God, and come back with a vision for our church. Now, I came back, and I obviously asked the elders to speak into it. Uh, I believe that spirit-filled community will affirm if it's from God. You know, it, what did they say in Acts 15? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So I believe that. But I do believe there's, there's power in, in, in asking someone to say, you be the person assigned to go hear from God. And, and that's what happened in our case. The other thing, um, well, I had a great, powerful thought. It was so powerful, it just blew all the circuits in my mind. Um, 
But but you come back with that vision and you, you share it with the church, and and I, I I believe it's got to be measurable. In other words, we exist to love the world. Well, that's that's going to be pretty hard to know if you had a good year, okay? And so we we have a vision statement that we measure, and every year the church knows I'm going to do at least one teaching a year where I'm going to say here's where we are on the things that we're, we believe God has called us to pursue. Not only that, because vision leaks, you have all kinds of opportunities throughout the course of the year to bring up that vision and talk about it. But here's what I was going to say. You reminded me. Whoever that person is that you feel like is going to be the person that's going to be the person, God is going to use their past and their experience to shape that vision. So in, in my case, because of that first sermon and because of that experience, uh, racial reconciliation matters to me. So you wouldn't be surprised then that our goal in these 15 years of our 2020 vision is to plant 34 churches, and 24 of them would be with ethnic church planters uh, that we would really pour into and pursue beginning churches in communities uh, uh, where different ethnicities uh, prevail. So God put that burden in me early. So it shouldn't be a surprise that that that's going to wind up in a vision that God's going to put on my heart. Uh, so, uh, and then church planning is going to be a part of that. Uh, anyway, God is going to use your past and your experiences and the things he's poured into you through the spirit. If you're the person assigned to craft the vision and it's going to show up in that vision. Awesome. We're going to take just one, one more question. Yeah. So strategies for um, for both inside, maybe through so, some type of feedback or whatever, uh, voices you trust, but also resources outside to grow as a preacher. What what uh, what's been effective for you guys, or what have you seen that you'd suggest? Sure, I'll, I'll tap a couple of them. Uh, one, <clears throat> we did a um, for years a randomized uh, outreach. Um, I, I had people that I always went to. Uh, but those people were people that I always went to because I had, you know, some connection with them. You need to find somebody who is really unlike you and regularly ask them. But we did a randomized thing where there would be a blind survey that would go out. I wouldn't know who it was coming back from. Uh, and we would get, you know, eight people and say, hey, could you please give us some feedback on the last two weeks lessons or on the last week's, you know, lesson. We actually did it on the whole service. Um, it, it really helped us to get away from, well, this is great, or everybody loves this. Well, no, actually, everybody doesn't. And here are some things that we might want to be, you know, thinking about. I cannot lick my finger and stick it up and see which way the wind's blowing and go that way. Uh, flags are really pretty to take pictures of, but, you, you know, you don't want to say, all right, whatever way that flag is going, because we, 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 it's going to change, you know, with each gust of the wind. Um, so uh, one, uh, reaching out in that way, um, the thing that most of us actually don't do that, that's brutal is actually watch yourself preach. Uh, in fact, if you really want to find something interesting, watch yourself preach and fast forward portions of it. <laughs> watch your body. You will quickly see, oh my goodness, I do this all the time, you know? And any repeated action is mama rocking a baby to sleep, and that's the last thing we need to do in church. So we're looking for ways to make our point stick. We're looking for ways to make God's word stick. So um, watching yourself, if you're really brave, and I have some guys that do this uh, who reach out to me and say, hey, Jeff, if I send you this, would you watch it and be honest with me? Uh, so getting some guys you know, outside. Now, the most precious thing we all have is time. So if I get 30 emails saying, hey, would you watch this? I, I need you to know I don't say yes uh, to, to all of them. And it's not because I don't like you. Uh, because I've got to have some time to work on getting better. What I love about your question is this. You don't just get a job and then preach till they fire you. You get a place where you can love and serve and grow there. So, man, thank you. Thank you for even asking that. Yeah, um... I'm always nervous doing events like this. I've only done a handful in my life because I feel like I'm still trying to learn how to be a better preacher. Mm. And so don't hear anything we say is saying we've got this figured out. I, I think it, you know, I, I made my oldest promise uh, 29 years ago when they hired me. 
Uh, I, I won't probably be the smartest, slickest guy you've ever heard. I will never step up in that pulpit unprepared, ever. I will never coast. I feel like I can look with you with integrity right now and say after 29 years with the same church, I'm not coasting. Every single – Milton Jones asked me one time, uh, he came to see me when I had turned 50, and he said, it was 50 years, favorite meal. 50 years, favorite golf course you ever played. And he said, 50 years, favorite sermon. And I thought, and I thought, the next one. That's my favorite sermon. It's the one I'm about to preach. It's going to be my best sermon ever. So you, you want to have that spirit as a preacher. You're always learning. It, preaching will seduce you. And let's be honest, ministry is a great place for lazy people to hide. So stay at it. Keep growing. One thing I do that helps, I listen to good preachers. I, I get seven, eight podcasts of good preachers, and I switch it around. I don't listen to preachers that are just like me, of my, my tribe, of my race, of my theological perspective. I listen to guys, and I ask the question, not just how can I be blessed by what they're saying, but why are they good at what they're doing? What can I learn from them? Uh, second thing I've done the last 30 years has helped. I try to mentor younger guys. Because when I have conversations with Taylor, I learn things about preaching that help me. Uh, and so uh, if, you're a, if you're a younger guy, find an older preacher and talk about preaching. If you're an older preacher, find a younger preacher and talk about preaching. It'll help both of you a lot. So, so that's important to me. And then finally, and this sounds like I'm not answering your question, but I am. If you're going to grow as a preacher and if you're going to do it for the long haul, you've got to understand your rhythm and you've got to practice self-care. You know, as, as, uh, as Taylor said, I'm introverted. He's extroverted. Introverts, it's not that we don't love people. We love people, but they drain us. To be refueled, we have to pull away, not so that we can stay away, but so that we can go back into the place where people are and love them some more. So I have to learn those rhythms that sustain me because here's what I've learned. When I get tired, I lean toward anger. And I wind up saying things that I wouldn't say if I was fresh. So part of growing as a preacher is learning my rhythms and how can I take care of myself so that when I get up in the pulpit on Sunday, I'm a healthy me. Because a healthy me is a lot better preacher. I'll throw one more thing. Uh, many of us as ministers get into a stylistic rut, whatever it is. You know, uh, opening story, uh, three points, uh, you know, moving video and invitation, you know. And what, what I would challenge you to do, uh, sometimes I, I've even drawn it out like a, like a big food plate, you know, because food's a happy thing. So uh, I'm trying to think, okay, where am I on using uh, drama? Where am I on using visuals? Where am I on using stories? Where am I on using puzzles? Our society loves puzzles. We love puzzles. And a puzzle is something that I present in a lesson that they go, oh, yeah, oh, how does that? And rather than immediately give them the answer, work, work the puzzle some. You know, mess with that Rubik's Cube a bit. Not physically, but I mean in, in talking about it. Um, uh, what about spoken word? Uh, what about testimonies? Uh, what about interviews? Um, what about story? What about a full narrative? Uh, what about, you know, and you can just continue. Once you've got that, that buffet plate there, then even if you just do it monthly or quarterly going, oh, man, I'm... I'm I'm only eating the carrots, and I've, I've left all the broccoli over here untouched. Well, okay, we're, I want to be respectful of these guys' times, and, uh, and so here's what I want to do. Real short, uh, I want to ask what, what most excites you about preaching in the future, um, about what you see in the next generation and, uh, and the trajectory of preaching in the church? I do believe in the power of preaching more than I ever have. I'm seeing more fruit in my personal preaching than I've ever seen. Um, I don't know all the reasons for that. I'm not a, uh, a social scientist. There are people here a lot smarter than me that can explain that. I, I'm going to offer you my theory. We, we have drunk the Kool-Aid of postmodernism so much that we're afraid if we're certain about anything, we'll turn off the world. I'm seeing a generation, especially of young people, that are so tired of being unsure about everything. They are looking for a place and a message that sounds like it might actually have a foundation and it might be solid and you could stand on it, maybe even build a life on it. I am more excited than ever about the future of preaching because I believe there's a generation out there eager to find out there's something that actually could sustain me. And uh, so I'm excited.
my first sermon was probably for 40 people. Um, I'll preach this weekend at a church, and I know that there will be tens of thousands who will have access to and may actually listen to a moment or two of that lesson. That's not because it's me. That's because of when we're living. That's because there are people who will Google certain words and look for certain themes, and you, and that lesson might show up. I'm excited because you, ladies and gentlemen, will get to speak to more people than Jesus ever did. Even speaking to the 5,000, you will speak to them because of the amazing ways. I mean, it, pretty soon it's going to be, is that a hologram or is that actually? I don't know. I don't care because I'm just, you know, I'm listening to it and it's good stuff. That, that excites me. And, and Rick stole one of mine, and so I'll just hitchhike on it. If you look at the stuff that the kids are, and kids, pardon me, that's anybody 30 or younger, right? If you, if you look at the stuff that millennials are out there listening to and thinking about, they are drawn to people who will look them in the eye or look that camera in the eye and say, look, this is the way it is. I mean, I've got stuck listening to some Jordan Peterson stuff, and he's a real hot voice right now out there. Good night. I mean, you know, what is it? Uh, always absolutely positive, never in doubt, sometimes wrong, but never in doubt. Uh, I, I, and and it's, that, it's that never in doubtedness that causes me to go, listen, I may say I'm not sure, but man, it's not, well, we really can't know for sure, but it's all going to be all right. Th that message is not going to get anybody out of bed. And if we really believe, I'll say that slow, if we really believe, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, as this brother said, then we will lean in, we will sing out loud, and we will know that God will reverberate that message literally all around the world. There's software that is being worked on right now that Rick Atchley's next sermon, when it is spoken, there are digital translators who are working on the fact that people will be able to listen to that sermon in Chinese in a non-computerized you know, computerized voice can you imagine? You'll be preaching in China or in Korea. Wow. Thank you, God, for letting us live at a time. Let us give important messages in that giant megaphone. And that's Jesus. Absolutely. Man. Hey, let's thank these guys for their time, for their ministry. Thank you. All right, you guys have a good one.